show to me is both silly and divine. It's both earthly and the secret of the universe, really. It's a chance and it's this idea of, of destiny. I mean, we're really talking about it on that scale. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. When was the last time you pulled a tarot card? Or are you a tarot virgin? I was until probably my mid-20s when a friend broke out her deck one night and read my cards in a Celtic cross spread. I have absolutely no idea which cards I drew, but I do remember what they looked like. Because it was a Rider weight deck, and if you just Google image classic tarot cards, you will probably recognize the Rider weights iconic Art Nouveau illustrations. The Rider weight deck has been around since 1909, and it's one of the first commercially available tarot decks designed not for game playing, but for divination purposes. Still today, it is the most popular tarot deck in the world. But get this, only in recent years has its artist, Pamela Coleman-Smith, the one who came up with those iconic Art Nouveau illustrations, finally gotten her credit. And the deck's proper name has been elongated to the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. More on Pamela later. What do the cards even mean, though? Can tarot tell us anything about our futures or reveal divine insights into our past or present? For today's guest, journalist Nalifer Hadayat, the magic of tarot is all in the willingness to pull cards and find out. I have to tell you that by trade, I am an investigative journalist and I make documentaries about criminal syndicates, global black markets, the industrial food complex, um, the Newsy. I've just completed a show about incarceration rates in El Salvador. My real life and my work is a data-driven investigative journalist. So walking into a room and just being like, what did the cards say? In a way, it's shown me the hubris of only going by the data and only going by what you see on paper. It has given me an ability to kind of open up a little bit and and not be so dismissive and not be so guarded with my with my ability to learn new things right because I'm trying not to get scammed here <laughs> mainly because <laughs> I don't want my audience to be scammed but equally I'm trying to learn to be open which is hard nowadays in addition to being an award-winning, data-driven investigative journalist, Nellifer is also the host of Ritually, where every episode, Nellifer tries out a different spiritual or wellness ritual and applies it to various aspects of her personal life. That's how she ended up sitting in her living room with the candles lit and her dog in her lap across from a tarot reader named Jen. This episode, Nellifer shares what happened next and why she wanted to explore tarot on Ritually in the first place. And she and I both get fired up about smashing the tarot patriarchy, which I guess we would call the 
tarot triarchy? Well, that's not right. My name is Nelifer Hidayat. I am a journalist and documentary filmmaker. And the reason that I make the Ritually podcast is because I entered a phase in my life where I felt I, I had this inclination, this need to find connection in the world and no tool, no way to do it. So that's why I make the podcast, because I'm constantly trying to find ways to make sense of this world through spiritual practices. Can you tell me a little bit about what was going on? What left you feeling like you needed some kind of connection? The thing that made me feel like I needed some kind of connection was the pandemic. I mean, mm. I think collectively we all seem to have erased it. I can't think of a better way to put it. We have decided to move on from the pandemic by pretending it never happened. Mm. But to me, it really did happen. It really did happen. And it happened in a big way. Yeah, there were good bits. I met my partner. I fell in love. I got a dog. Mm. You know, I got a COVID puppy, just like everyone else, I suppose. But there was also this feeling of utter disconnection. I was removed mm -hmm. from all the things that I found meaning in. And I was put into a house. And I, at the time, I lived by myself, which in itself is a privilege and a curse, right? Mm -hmm. And then I had all this time to think. <laughs> so I was caught and I needed a way to, to make sense of the fact that the world was falling over. We're not trying to sell you, like, I don't know, anal crystal beads. This is not that thing. We, we're, we're simply, you know, um, trying to kind of like find meaning in this, in, in the world that we now live in, which is deeply distrusting of one another, polarized to the extremes on either side, um, divided, disconnected. I'm curious what kinds of ritual, if any, you grew up around? I was raised, so I was raised as a moderate practicing Muslim. Okay, so this meant that ritual was in my day-to-day -day life. For example, I grew up with my mum and sometimes my dad practicing ablution, which is the process of purifying your body to pray in front of God. Then I grew up with the practice of learning to read the Quran, the holy text of the Muslim people. And then there was like the fun stuff, right? <laughs> so the rituals around Eid of waking up and you have to wear new clothes and you get little bits of money from older people and then there was the ritual of food and, and rue and burning incense and purifying houses. And to me, ritual is just another word for the familiar, a way to make yourself feel connected to the space you're in and the people around you. So it's no small thing to say that I grew up with ritual all around me. <laughs> uh, were there any religious rules around 
Like divination, tarot. My parents never forbade us from doing anything like that. But they were also very keen to, I guess, instill in us how silly and frivolous that stuff is. Like, you're a Muslim. You're the right one. You're the, you're the correct one, right? You know what mm. I mean? And so I never had that fear. My parents did, they didn't like the fact that I was always fascinated by doing stuff, right? So for me, reciting the Quran as I was kind of made to do on the weekends wasn't satisfying. I wanted to burn the incense and say these like pagan words and like these silly little chants and incantations. I wanted to be the one that, you know, went out outside and looked at the because I was fascinated by the moon and the kind of the, the, the Islamic calendar is indeed a lunar one. Mm. So I think there was definitely a sense of rebelliousness in me when it came to religion. And the episode where we did like as we we, we did an exorcism of a demon in episode mm -hmm. three, you know, we did a female call to prayer, which is a rebellious act. For me, it was always more rebellious to change my religion than to, than to need to step out of it. And mm. that's what I do. Even to this day, I'm just like, no, no, <laughs> I don't want that one. I want it to be like this. I think Ritually brought up for me a lot of the chains that often women and minority communities experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in these spaces. And I'll never, ever forget. I mean, it's kind of like a really powerful moment in the, in, in the podcast, episode one, where my guide, Zora Zoltash, uh, essentially said to me, you know, this religion has been used as chains to keep people like me down. But I reclaim it and I reclaim it first with my voice and then with my hands and then with my feet and then with my body. And I think that's just such an important part of the whole of the whole practice. What was your familiarity with tarot kind of going into it? I've had my tarot cards read three times and each time I was told I was going to die a horrible death and like <laughs> my my husband's name was going to be Peter or something or that like I yeah I'm not even kidding like oh your 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 partner's name begins with a P really oh god I better tell Sam um you know like and that was my experience so I did come to it with a sense of playfulness maybe even underestimating it right and by the end of the episode I have really gone on a journey that helps me to understand that more than anything, tarot is about the story of you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Before we get back to Nellifer, where did tarot cards come from? The answer to that is like an anthropology, art history, and culture studies course rolled into one. But here's the highlights reel. The earliest references to tarot cards come from the 1440s, 1450s in northern Italy. You're Venice, Milan, Florence. Italian aristocrats are playing this game with tarot decks that has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, asking questions to the universe. The game is called Tarocci, and it's apparently similar to Bridge, which automatically tells me I will never learn how to play it because there are probably too many rules. Our Renaissance-era aristos, though, were very much into it. Some would even show off by commissioning their own custom hand-painted tarot decks. Still, though, it was a whole nother century before tarot got a new mystical backstory. The mythology of occult tarot, that it contains this ancient, primarily Egyptian, along with some Celtic and Kabbalah secret knowledge. Tarot heads, please don't at me. It was made up in the 1780s when tarot decks had migrated out of northern Italy and made its way to Paris. 1780s France, it was all about secret societies, mysticism, radical politics. Things were bubbling up under the surface, okay? And around that time, a couple of French dudes whose names I'm not going to attempt to pronounce were really involved in these secret societies, getting into mysticism, and they published these books claiming that, in fact... Tarot cards hold all of kind of the secrets of the universe. And keep in mind, like, this is happening in reaction against the Enlightenment, the church, authoritarianism, and the whole thing about tarot containing ancient Egyptian knowledge also makes sense for the time, because both in France, also in the U.S., the West was very hot on Egypt. And I mean that in the most colonialism, white supremacist form of the word. It was an era of what scholars call Egyptomania that seeded, as well, the whole gypsy fortune teller stereotype. Because, see, part of the occult tarot myth that those Frenchmen began spreading was that tarot cards were brought to Europe by the Romani, who'd been given them thousands of years ago by ancient Egyptian priests. And for the record, the Romani likely descended from India, not Egypt, but just all sorts of exoticizing happening left, right, and center. What's true, though, and kind of more astonishing, is that the mythology of tarot doesn't disempower the deck. There is something about the archetypes embedded in the cards and the ritual of reading them that still speak to us. And speaking of rituals and card readings, let's get back to Nellifer. The reading itself with Jen, my guide, was just magical because she's such and she's just a, a witty Brit, really. And she just <laughs> made the whole experience really magical for me. You've got to find someone who can, um, if you are wanting to, 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 to do the ritual of tarot, you should find someone that m feels comfortable telling you what they see in your response to the cards. 
right? Mm. So that was such an eye-opening experience for me. When I was going through the, the ritual, I was almost more interested in Jen's watching me as I was in the tarot cards. And the tarot cards I got were just wild. I mean, in essence, they helped me answer two fundamental questions. And, you know, one of them, which was, do I buy a house with my partner? Do I trust, um, you know, I, I personally am a very independent person. And Jen's ability to tell me the story of what she saw with my input helped me make the decision more comfortably. And here I am today and we just completed on our house and we're going to move in. The power of it is vast, but only to the amount you are willing to receive it. Yeah, in in listening to that episode and the way that she walked you through the reading, it reminded me of like just therapy sessions that I have had where my therapist is not like telling me what I should do with my life. She is more, you know, it's that sort of responding to, uh, you know, reactions and what, what things come out in the process. I absolutely love that you went there. That's exactly how I felt. I felt like it was therapy, but I was my therapist. Mm. Right? So it wasn't that Jen was there going, mm, you know, and, and, and how did that make you feel? It was more <laughs> like she was saying, this, what does this card bring up for you? Oh, okay. And would it make sense for it to go with this card that suggests this? Or do you think it has more meaning for you with this card? But I have to find that meaning. I have to do the hard work of kind of going, well, where, you know, what does this bring up for me and, and, how, and, and what does it mean for me? Jen would kind of be more like, this is what a card means. And these two together often suggest this. You know, she, essentially she's a walking, talking tarot textbook. And <laughs> she's, she's definitely there to help me along. But I had to, I had to console myself or I had to bring myself to the moment of asking the difficult questions about myself. And, and that is the power of tarot. It is very much like, being like your own therapist. You mentioned that you were going in with kind of two questions, one being whether or not to buy the house. What was the second question? It was a deeply, deeply difficult question about justice. Um, I, I had to decide whether I was going to pursue justice and I was going to get someone in trouble because they had behaved badly. Mm. And the reading helped me to see for myself with my own intuition that I can't, I, I, I couldn't. It just made me realize that I had to do more than just say that I wanted to do the right thing and I had to I had I had the, the permission to do the right thing and the right thing for me could have been to walk away or to 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 move forward and so I decided to do the harder thing and that's an ongoing thing for me I will continue to 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 do it but that level of I didn't ha I had no clue that these were the two things that the reading was going to be about but when it happened 
over the course of those hours, I did open myself up to the possibility of these questions being asked and answered. And, and I, I, I did it, you know, months down the line, I'm doing it. I did the thing. Did the thing in terms of pursuing justice or walking away? Pursuing it. Oh, wow. Mm. We've got big things on the line in this one tarot reading. I know. It's mental, especially because it was such a giggle making it. (laughs) (laughs) I I just, I, I felt so comfortable and I felt so supported. It's not very often that we get to talk about our intuition as women. Mm. To have somebody like Jen sit in front of me, pull out these cards, and they form a sequence. They tell a story. They tell a story that's part of my story. I look at the tarot. I see myself in the story it's telling. And I take the, the, the end result, the, the answer, the, the, the final card to be an instruction. Well, now there, storytelling is such a powerful thing. And that when we mix it with something like intuition, there you've got a drive, right? I felt like every card being turned was illuminating a step I should take. And I trusted myself to take the next step. So by the end, would I mean, I've, I've, I would definitely do tarot readings again in my future. And I would definitely think that they're important but but I I personally wouldn't do it on my own right so you can read for yourself if you want to if that's something that's that that, that's that's calling you personally I would always do it with a friend with a reader with a practitioner that I trust because I think you I do need that other person to help guide me in terms of I think just someone to bounce off of Mm-hmm. Someone to just for, for me to go like, are you seriously seeing justice coming up? Are you really? I mean, are you sure? This, I mean, are, are you sure you're not just seeing like a you know like um, a parking ticket fine? Are you sure it's the, <laughs> the concept of justice? <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. I'm definitely seeing you have to make huge moral decisions about right or wrong. Oh. Okay, right, Jen, if that's what you see. So I, I think I really vibed off of that. I really enjoyed the collaborative thing. And 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 for anyone who wants to try a tarot, try it on your own. Try a Celtic cross uh, kind of reading. Try a three-card spread. Try whatever you want, but, but kind of don't let dogma dictate you. Um, and and I I was I started off on the other end of that being quite frivolous by the end of it quite enjoying it right it was an enjoying process and now Some women's history of tarot. In A Cultural History of Tarot, scholar Helen Farley attributes the 20th century spread of tarot card reading to a pretty small and internally divisive secret society of self-appointed mystics. 
The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was started in London in 1888 by four men who were really into things like surrealism, Art Nouveau, mysticism, of course. To their credit, these men were also like, hey, you know who should be able to join our club? Women. Most other esoteric societies at the time were men only. But Golden Dawn, hey, let the women come on in. They should have access to our society. They should also be able to rise through the ranks. And get this, guys, they should be able to illustrate the tarot decks that we come up with. For example, one of the earliest female initiates to the Golden Dawn was this woman, Minna Bergson, who ended up marrying one of the Golden Dawn founders. So she was in it. She designed the group's original tarot deck, and some even think it was all Minna's idea. Although, of course, her husband claimed she was just following his directions. Classic. Then along came Pamela Coleman Smith, who I referenced at the beginning of this episode. Another one of the Golden Dawn founders, this guy Arthur Waite, had seen her paintings and commissioned her to bring to life what would become the most popular tarot deck in the world in 1909. In exchange, Pamela got a flat fee and a fleeting shout-out from Arthur in the Occult Review magazine where he called her, quote, a very skillful and original artist and also misspelled her name. What's kind of wild about this, too, though, is Pamela Coleman-Smith at the time. She is in her early 30s. She's kind of living this artistic bohemian life. She may or may not have also been a queer icon living with her business partner and female friend, Nora. But three years after that writer Waite Smith deck is published, Pamela quits making art. Over at CNN, Jackie Palumbo reported she mounted her last art show, converted to Catholicism, and bought a house in Cornwall after inheriting some money from a family member's death. She and her partner, Lake, moved into the home and made a living renting it out to priests. To which I say, slow down Jackie Palumbo of CNN.com. What? Can we fill in some details here? What happened? She got a little inheritance and was like, okay. Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, all you mystical bros, bye. See you later. I'm going to go to church? And rule of threes, there was also Lady Frida Harris, who convinced Golden Dawn's most famous slash infamous initiate, Aleister Crowley, that he should design his own cards and let her paint them. And that is how the Toth tarot cards came to be in the 1940s. Although, like a lot of tarot decks, they weren't made commercially available until the late 1970s. So while women were definitely in on tarot reading, for much of its history, men were the mystical gatekeepers, which kind of surprised me at first. And I wondered if it surprised Nellifer too. I've been doing some background reading on my own just about the history of tarot as a divination tool. And I was really surprised to learn how it used to be much more of like an elite man's kind of uh, ritual. Why do you think it's basically the opposite now? Like, I feel like tarot, when I think of 
tarot and tarot readings, I think of women, LGBTQ folks, like I, I'm not seeing like cis straight <laughs> dudes out here, you know, getting together to read their cards. There's no there's no CEO sitting in a boardroom somewhere in Manhattan going, get out the Ouija board, son. We're gonna do some we're gonna we're gonna do some we're gonna do some meetings. Like that's just not gonna happen. But you've hit the nail on the head on something that I have recognized throughout my life and career. Whenever a thing was made for exclusively, predominantly men who are heteronormative, who live, that thing is considered upper class, it's considered good, pure, powerful, and expensive. As soon mm. as other minority groups maybe do it better or, or ha- adopt it into their customs and cultures and ways of life, all of a sudden, the roles reverse. Now, it is true that high heels were invented for men in courts around Europe. The same can be said for wigs and makeup, almost exclusively for men. And then it became for women. The same can be said for things like data analysis. We now know that the term computer was often used to describe women who would do complex computations. And all of a sudden, when that became kind of a man's job, it became coding, it became elite, it became tech. These tools are shaped by the context of their communities. Religion itself has been a tool to oppress minorities and elevate one single type of person, often uh, white, often male, often heteronormative, or at least appearing to be heteronormative men. Religion has been a place where if you are a man and you and you act and talk and behave in a certain way, you can rise up quite fast. But women can literally not enter that sphere. So knowing this and knowing that tarot in the Victorian era was genuinely seen as a way of divining information from the gods and the cosmos, of course it was only done by men, um, until it became something that involved the intuition And then women became far more able to use it and far more able to capitalize on it. And then all of a sudden it becomes like this, it becomes this like seedy little thing that you do at the fair. Mm. And tarot, the the hidden history of tarot, and that's what you're describing, right? This hidden history. The hidden history of tarot is the history of women and minority subjugation. It's a way for these minorities and, and, and women especially to just be like, fuck you, actually. Um, this is something we're claiming for ourselves. And yeah, it might be a bit of fun or it could help us make life-changing decisions. And we're going to use it for both. And I do think that there is a significance to having a tool like this that validates intuition rather than kind of regardless of whatever sort of like patriarchal societal rules might be around you. Through their practice of their religion, my mom and dad were like, you can do anything a boy can do. You are no different to a man. You're better than a man. You're incredible. You want to be prime minister? We'll get you the books. You want to be... um you want to run the United Nations? We'll get you the hat. You know, whatever I wanted, I was told I could achieve. At the same time, I was genuinely made to believe that if a man 
touched my vagina, right, that I would get pregnant and then my mum would throw me out. That was genuinely a story I was told. I was told that, um, you know, uh, gay people or people who were part of the LGBTQIA plus community were unfortunately misled and, and they're all bad, you know, because they, they've, mm-hmm. they've allowed themselves to be misled in that way. So can you imagine how warped my understanding of womanhood or asking and answering questions were? My mom and dad raised me to be rebellious. And yet they also didn't want me to ask the questions that they didn't approve of, right? So right. taking it back to tarot, because I think it leads nicely into that is the sense the tarot will not tell you before you start what the answer is. Because by virtue of asking a question, you are searching. It is the search itself that is illuminating more than the answer, right? Should I go out on a date with Josh? Um, You know, do I need to tell my best friend that she kind of like really encroached on one of my boundaries? Sure. Yes or no? High, High or dry? But even in a three card flip, right? One of the more basic, uh, easiest tarot readings. There are still three cards and thousands and thousands of possibilities of what those three cards are going to be. Tarot is not a black and white on off yes, no thing. It is an exploration. And that is where the power lies in it. Do you have any advice for listeners on using tarot in terms of decision making? Yes. Don't do it if you don't want to. Do it if you do. That's kind of my general <laughs> guide. No, but on a serious note, um, to kind of to kind of I think I think you should definitely think about trying it if you are curious about connecting to yourself in a new way. So, you know, you and I have spoken at length about therapy. And then I have a lot, um, I'm I've been diagnosed with um complex um, uh, PTSD. So I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder because I was born in Afghanistan. I was, I was born uh, in a civil war and then I became a refugee. And when I got to the UK, I, I, I had a really, really tricky time settling in and, and fitting in. And then my work itself revolves around really complex, difficult, dark matter. So for me, I have thousands of tools in my arsenal that I can use at any one time to help me survive this fucking world, right? And tarot, genuinely and honestly, is one of those tools for me. It doesn't have to be the answer to all of your questions, but it could be a place to explore a side of yourself, to give yourself the literal space and the actual time to think about things outside of your own mind. And that is the beauty of tarot. If anything I've said applies to you and who you are listening, yes, you, you, yeah, mm-hmm, you, <laughs> then like give tarot a go. It's cool. Okay, and ladies, what are your thoughts on tarot? Are you an enthusiast? Has tarot ever helped you make decisions? Or have you ever been skeptical of maybe a friend or loved one who seemed too guided by tarot readings? 
Let me know your thoughts. Oh, and any tarot readers out there? Whew, I'm sure you have a lot to say. <laughs> I would love to hear from you. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me your old-fashioned emails if you'd like, but I'd love it in the form of a voice memo. You can also DM me or send me a voice memo on Instagram at unladylikemedia. And listen to Ritually, Nellifer's podcast. It's so good. And you heard her describe some of the episodes. Uh, there are six of them, along with some bonus episodes. They're, they're beautifully created, both in terms of the audio and the storytelling. And I think that y'all would really enjoy it. So you can find Ritually anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow Nellifar on Twitter at Nellifar or on Instagram at Nellifar.h. I would also love to see you over in the Unladies Room Patreon. For $5 a month, you can help Unladylike keep unladyliking. And in exchange, I will give you bonus episodes. Recent bonus episodes include a one-year look back at the Iranian protests that broke out after the death of Masa Amini, as well as a fabulous interview about the Daily Mail and the history of tabloids with none other than Kristen Meinzer. And if you are interested in bonus episodes but are like, I don't want to have to use Patreon to listen to bonus episodes, guess what? You don't have to. You don't have to listen on Patreon. You can get your Patreon bonus feed delivered directly to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. So don't let that hold you back. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. You can follow Unladylike on all of the places, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Ooh, that's my stomach. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing about you? The most unladylike thing about me is when I'm walking down the street, I don't move out of the way of men. And I will, especially if I'm in a financial district, which we call the city, confusingly, I will not move out of the way of men. I will move out of the way of women who have trams or, or disabled people or whatever else it might be. And then if they barge me, I give them hell. That's the most unladylike thing about me. Oh my God, I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> I just Brian. want you to wear like a GoPro out one day. <laughs> oh my God, that's for another podcast. We've got to do this again. We've got to do this. It's hilarious the number of times men just, just physically expect you to get out of their way. And I'm just like, fuck you, bro. No. <laughs>